The crucifixion was a very real thing. He was murdered, the Lord Jesus, you know that? He was murdered and then rose up from it all. And so much took place even before he was impaled upon the cross. It's just astounding, his love for one such as you and I and these others in Southeast Asia and around the world. The Lord, we saw in prior weeks, had um, uh, been faced with numerous trials. Some were Jewish religious trials. One was before Annas. He was a prior high priest. And then the Lord had to go before his son-in-law, Caiaphas, and then before the whole Jewish Sanhedrin. And then after a series of Jewish religious trials, the Lord was interrogated. This was all through the night. He was up all night. The Lord was interrogated uh, by the Roman uh, governor, Pontius Pilate. So there were trials by um, sinful representatives of a religion. There were trials by sinful government representatives. And um, Pontius Pilate found no guilt in the Lord Jesus. In fact, he mentioned this. On numerous occasions, there was nothing wrong. He couldn't find anything worthy of something so permanent and severe as crucifixion. And yet under pressure, he was a politician, you know, and he wanted to ensure the longevity of his office. He wanted to be reelected, if you will. And so he was under enormous pressure by the Jewish leadership to crucify this radical rabbi Jesus, this blasphemer, this one who claimed to be their king. And Pilate caved in because he already was in bad shape with the Roman emperor, his boss in Rome, Tiberius. And Pilate knew he didn't need any more negative attention. And so if he didn't give the Jewish religious leaders what they wanted, they would complain to the emperor in Rome and it would come upon Pilate and compromise his capacity to remain uh, the governor of Rome in the Holy Land. And so he made the decision to have Jesus crucified. And so we read now in John chapter 19, verse 16. This is where we left off last time. So we're in John chapter 19, verse 16. It says, so he, that's Pilate, handed him, that's Jesus, over to them to be crucified. And so the Lord went immediately from judgment to execution. They took Jesus and led him away. That's in fact what the text says. They took Jesus and, and they led him away. There was nothing intervening there. There was a judgment pronounced upon him and, and then the sentence was almost immediately carried out. It wasn't supposed to be this way. This was a violation of Jewish law, you know. They suggested that there would be a period of time intervening between the judgment and the execution in the event new evidence might be provided and thus be presented on behalf of the accused. But this law of Jewish jurisprudence was violated it wasn't only the Jews who had this law, so too did the Romans. According to Roman law, a minimum of two days had to intervene before the gavel went down, guilty as charged, and before the sentence was irreversibly carried out. There had to be two days, but it didn't happen. Jewish law was violated. Roman law was violated. Why? Why did things happen this way? Well, it happened this way in order to fulfill Scripture. That's why. 
in order to reveal that in the midst of all of this out of control, evil imposition of religious and governmental power, still the one who was most in control was Jesus himself. Everything was operating according to the sovereign will of God. Man couldn't interfere with it at all. In fact, what is happening here is a fulfillment of a prophecy that was made about 700 years before the incident we're reading about here. Isaiah was the one who wrote about it. In a very important chapter, Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, verse 8, it says... By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Well, folks, that's written about Jesus 700 years before all this happened. That's why things had to happen the way they did in fulfillment of Scripture. And so verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out. You know, if you read the Bible too quickly, you'll miss certain things. I'll tell you what I mean. Ordinarily, if someone was convicted of a crime against Rome, the sentence of which was crucifixion, ordinarily that person would go to the cross kicking and screaming. Uh, that person had to be driven or dragged there. Why? Because that person knew what he was in store for. He knew that he would be impaled on a cross and maybe uh, experienced torturous pain, not just for hours, but even for days. The Romans perfected crucifixion and elongated it. And so the person who was facing it decided, even if I buck Rome, even if they kill me on the way to the cross, that would be a more merciful, quicker kind of death. And so they oftentimes acted like crazed animals trying to run for their life. And yet, and yet we read here, that didn't happen with Jesus. They took Jesus and he went out. That's it. He went out. He didn't need to be driven nor dragged. He was no crazed animal. N no, folks. Jesus went out because this is why he came. He came to suffer and die for ones such as you and I. This was his fate. And so we read in John chapter 10, verse 14 and forward, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, all of this was the purpose for which he came. And this, too, is a fulfillment of something spoken by Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed. Who do you think this is speaking of? 700 years before Christ, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And now look back at verse 17. It says, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross. Why did he do that? Well, because he was regarded as a common criminal, and that was their fate. Someone convicted by Rome of a capital crime would be obligated to carry his own cross. It was a sign of guilt, you see. And so the Lord would probably have been carrying the horizontal beam of the cross. It's known as the patibulum, and it could have weighed up to 200 pounds. So not the upright, vertical 
a stake, but the horizontal one would be placed on the criminal's shoulders. He'd have to carry it through the streets of Jerusalem. Don't you see? This was both to humiliate the criminal, but also uh, it was a deterrent against uh, crimes against Rome. And remember, the Lord had been up all night long, and he had been shuffled back and forth between all of these trials, and he, he was mocked, and on one occasion, he was slapped in the face, and not only that, he was flogged. All of this happened, and then he was made to carry his own cross, and he did so until he could carry it no longer, and then we read this in a parallel account by the, another gospel writer, Mark, in chapter 15, verse 21, we read, the Romans pressed into service a passerby coming from the country. His name was Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene would be in present-day Libya in Africa. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and the Romans enlisted him. They, they made him. They, they, they asked him to carry the cross of Jesus because he couldn't bear him his cross himself. Here's a depiction of it by famous Italian artist Titian. It was painted in 1590. You get some idea of the pathos and emotion of it all. And so the Lord went through the city. Before him, there would be a Roman officer carrying a sign on which was written the crime for which the criminal was about to be crucified again this was to deter others from committing crimes against Rome. And so bearing his own cross, as long as he could, uh, the Lord walked. And the text says he did so to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Of course, you've heard about that. Golgotha, place of the skull. Why is it called that? Some say because this rocky, hilly place looked like a skull. Could, could be, but I don't think so. I think it's more likely that it had the name Golgotha or skull because it was a known place of Roman execution. Many who were crucified, well, they had their skulls and bones after birds had picked away their flesh. That's how it happened. Their skulls were just strewn all over the hillside. I think that's why it was called Golgotha. By the way, you've heard the word Calvary, beautiful word to us. We sing hymns containing that word. That's the Latin for skull. So the place of the skull in Hebrew, that's Golgotha. In Latin, it would be Calvary. Well, the people knew of this place because, as I say, it was a popular place of Roman execution. Jesus was led here, and uh, folks, it was just outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was executed outside of the gates of Jerusalem. How do we know that? Well, folks, Roman law required it. Did you know that? A crucifixion was thought to be such a repulsive form of capital punishment uh, that the Romans made it illegal for there to be crucifixion of a man within the boundaries of a city. And so the Lord Jesus was crucified beyond the city, outside its gates. Keeping this in mind, let me read to you Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 to 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned 
outside the camp. Therefore, not my interpretation, this is what the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Uh, the Lord Jesus experienced this so as to show us he's the ultimate sacrificial lamb of God. As they were burnt outside the gate, so too was he in order to put an end to the sacrificial system. By the way, if you are a Christian here tonight, please think of this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, your Savior, had you and me on his mind. Think about it. As he was about to be impaled on the cross, he thought about one such as you and I. That's why it says in Hebrews, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He thought about how what he was doing would accrue to our account 2,000 years ago. Now, folks, there are two traditional sites for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Most people think it's one of these sites. There's arguments about which it is. One of the sites is called Gordon's Calvary, and the other, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Here is a picture of Gordon's Calvary. You can see it there. It was named after Major General Charles Gordon, a British Army officer who visited Jerusalem for the first time in 1882. While there, he saw this. And then, even now, but then it really, really appeared to him to look like a skull. It, through erosion and so on, it's looking less like a skull. Those who have been to Israel have seen this. Anyway, when General Gordon saw it, he thought for sure it's a skull. That's Golgotha. That's Mount Calvary. <clears throat> That's the site of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And there are some very commendable uh, points that could suggest to us that, in fact, was the site. Others, however, say, no, it wasn't that site. This is the site, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It stands in Jerusalem. Uh, and what happened is that it stands on an original church, was which was constructed in the 4th century by a lady named Helena. <clears throat> she was the mother of the then emperor of Rome, Constantine. It is said that Constantine saw the image of a cross in the sky, and as a result, he was converted. He became a believer and, and made Christianity the religion of the empire. And therefore, his mother was sent to the Holy Land in order to build a church on all the key sites in the life of the Lord Jesus, the, like his crucifixion. And so some say that was the site. And if you go to Israel and see the church, this church of the Holy Sepulchre, you can go into it. Very kind of interesting thing. On the second level, there's a ladder. And it's been there for hundreds of years. Um, that church is shared by about six different denominations. They can't get along. And they have turf wars. Somehow the ladder was placed outside the window in order to do some cleaning hundreds of years ago. Apparently it was a violation of the territory of one of the denominations. And 
All six are fighting over it. They can't decide who is authorized to go out on the ledge and remove the wooden ladder and bring it back in. I'm not lying. That's a true story. Folks, religion is a whole lot different than personal devotion and a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know. Nobody knows for sure what is the site of the Lord's crucifixion. We just know it's a fact that we have to reckon with and ought to. So verse 18, there they crucified him. You don't want to read too fast when you read the Bible. You want to pause and think about this because crucifixion is probably the most terrible death devised by humankind. Even the Romans themselves shuddered at the thought about it. Roman philosopher Cicero, for instance, said of crucifixion, it was the most cruel and horrifying death. The Persians came up with it. The Persians did. And then the Carthaginians in North Africa embraced it. And then the Romans got it from them and, as I mentioned, perfected it so that it extended the life of the accused until he was sufficiently tortured and died. It was such a brutal form of death that, did you know this? No Roman citizen was permitted to be crucified except by a direct order from the Roman emperor himself. Uh, folks, it was this death, the most dreaded kind of death in the ancient world, the kind of death experienced by slaves and criminals that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for you and me. It was a deliberately long, drawn-out and painful form of death. Its design was to humiliate and torture the victim and also to discourage others from toying with Rome. The victim was stripped naked and then beaten and he could hang on the cross for hours, in many cases even days. Suffocation was the most frequent form of death on a cross. See, in order to breathe, the victim would have to somehow raise himself off the cross with his arms. And think about it, his feet have been pierced through. He's pushing up, he's pushing up. He's raising himself so as to enlarge his chest cavities so as to be enabled to breathe and and can you imagine the searing pain when you're pushing up on here your feet there's a nail through them and so the victim of of crucifixion would oftentimes uh, oftentimes die the excruciating death of suffocation did you hear the word I used excruciating do you know that word has no meaning apart from the cross it has a Latin root. It's actually based on this true event, excruciating. It means off of the cross. When the victim, he would be cramped up and would try to raise himself off the old rugged cross. Because remember, he's been beaten, scourged. In most cases, their backs were just cut to ribbons. And, and they're trying to lift themselves up on this wooden vertical a post to try to get some relief from cramping and they're opening up wounds. Maybe the blood had coagulated for a while and, and as that one lifts himself off the cross, he experienced excruciating pain. That's where 
That's where the word came from, off of the cross. And so the text says there they crucified him and with him two other men. You know about this. One on either side and Jesus in between. So there were three crosses. Here is a depiction of it by Peter Paul Rubens, famous Flemish painter, just to give you some notion of what it looked like. And on these three crosses, if you think about it, were three very different people. One was the Savior who was about to die for sinners. One was a sinner who was about to be saved. And one was a sinner who was about to be lost forever. In dying between these two thieves, Jesus fulfilled another prophecy by Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Listen, therefore... I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors 700 years before it happened. We're reading this. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now take a look at verse 19. It says, And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. See, above our Lord's head, this was common procedure, on the vertical projecting beam, not the horizontal beam, the patibulum, on the vertical beam, above the Lord's head, a pilot had a sign placed. It was called the titulus, or title, and it stated the reason for the crucifixion. Uh, But the Lord had committed no crime. Pilate said this on numerous occasions. I find nothing wrong in him. There was no crime. And so what Pilate did was to come up with something that would not state the Lord's crime. There was none. But which would humiliate the Jewish religious leaders. And that's why he put on this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He didn't live up to Jewish kingly expectations at all. He's from Nazareth. I know we think of that place in glowing terms, but in this day, it was nothing but an insignificant place, maybe 130 people at best. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? There was nothing to it. And when Pilate inscribed those words there on the titulus, he was saying, in your face, Jewish religious leaders, this is your king from Nazareth. That's why he did what he did. But folks, what Pilate meant in sarcasm, God meant in truth, didn't he? Jesus is the king of the Jews. Therefore, verse 20, this inscription, many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written, look at this, in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So you... You kind of see it. That's Hebrew on top and Greek in the middle. That's Latin on the, on the bottom. See in top? Yeshua. Hanotzrim Vamelech of Nazareth. Uh, this term, uh, the Nazarene, when we go to Israel on uh, service trips, In certain villages, they refer to us not as Christians and not as Baptists. They call us the Nodstream, which means followers of the one from Nazareth. That's great. 
We're really not interested in making Baptists at anyone. Sorry about that. We want them to fall in love with the one from Nazareth. So after nine years now, they separated us out from organized religion, which doesn't have a good reputation in the Middle East, and they call us the note stream from Texas. They call us followers of the one from Nazareth from Texas. Anyway, so there was Hebrew, and then there's Greek, and there's why three languages. Well, Hebrew is the language of the Jewish people. Latin was the language of the Romans, particularly in government. Greek was the language of commerce and trade. Here's the point. Everybody is to know. Everyone is to consider that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the king of the Jews. Verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews were, they were saying to Pilate, no, 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 do not write the king of the Jews, write that he said I'm the king of the Jews. You see what they're doing? They don't want this to be stated as a fact because they denied, they denied their own king. In verse 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate had enough. Look at here. He just gave in to the Jewish religious leaders so much uh, enough was enough, he said. That's it. What I've written, I've written. And so the soldiers, verse 23, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, Roman soldiers, they took his outer garments and they made four parts, a, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. You know, clothes were then handmade, not factory produced Therefore, they had some value to them. They even were expensive. As a result, they became part of the payment given to the Roman executioners. And there were typically four executioners assigned to each cross. Therefore, the text, as you see, the clothes were divided into four parts. One part for each of the four Roman soldiers. But there was an extra garment. Here it is referred to as the tunic. And of it, it is said that it was seamless, woven in one piece. Here's, here's kind of an example of what it probably looked like. It was a long shirt, one-piece shirt, often worn under something else. Since it had been woven as one piece, the soldiers decided to cast lots for it to determine who would get it. And so we read in verse 24, they said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. What was really behind all this? Why did they do this? Look what the text says, verse 24, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here's the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Folks, that's a direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 18. Once again, the Lord Jesus orchestrated everything in order to demonstrate to one such as you and I, there's only one Savior, and it is Jesus. We are not required to make a blind leap from logic to faith. We have plenty of basis for putting our faith in the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God. Who else? has fulfilled 300 prophecies with reference to the crucifixion of the Messiah. Who else could have done it but the Lord Jesus Christ? And so they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's exactly 
what it says in Psalm 22, verse 18. Now, folks, these Roman soldiers had, I think, no idea that in doing what they were doing, they were, in effect, providing evidence for the truthfulness and the reliability of Scripture. They thought they were in control, but they're not. God is sovereign. Nobody else is. They have no idea that what they were doing was in direct fulfillment of Scripture. Thank you, Roman soldiers, for giving us more evidence of the veracity, trustworthiness, and reliability of the inspired text of Scripture. And so the text says all that happened, happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled. At the time when Jesus looked at his weakest and man at his strongest, the opposite is true. Almighty God is always fully in control. Now, folks, as we close, let me just mention this. It's very, very sad that the Roman soldiers saw nothing to gain from Jesus but some items of clothing. They saw that he had nothing more to offer them than some material gain. That's a sad and shameful thing. Many, even in our day, look to him for the same and nothing more, but he has so much more to offer than just material things. I hope if you're here tonight, you're not settling for less than what Jesus is prepared to offer to you. He offers forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and even the ones yet to have been committed. He offers eternal life. We heard from some wonderful folks about the suffering of our brothers and sisters in different places in the world, the likes of which we've yet to experience here. Maybe we will. I don't know. What do you tell them? Well, you might say something like Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're real. It's Brandy so well shared. You might share with them, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Don't settle for mere material things from Jesus. Don't make him a divine Santa Claus. He's come to give much more forgiveness and eternal life. However long may be our life here, whatever its quality, the promise is of eternal life. When this is over, it isn't over. It is the beginning for those who by faith are attached to the one who is the resurrection and the life. He offers forgiveness and eternal life. You know what he offers? A personal relationship. I see, it saddens me to have to read this text. I see what the religion of my people has led them to. Liturgy and ceremony and tradition and the denial of our own king and Messiah. That's what religion has done. It saddens me, for sure. I see the religion of other peoples of the world as well, erecting a barrier between them and Almighty God, and yet to have a personal relationship with Him, personal access, needing no other mediator save Jesus alone. Folks, that's worth more than any material thing the Lord may, in addition, choose to give us. Don't look to Jesus for only material things when he's prepared to give us so much more. Did you know he died entirely naked? I know in renderings of the crucifixion, there's a cloth, big 
because of our sensibilities, but that's not the way it happened. It was public humiliation. The victim was stripped entirely naked. The king of kings, the Alpha and Omega, the one who has no beginning nor any end, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus the Lamb, was stripped naked for you and I, and yet in return he offers us clothes of righteousness. That is for all who will accept him. I hope you have. If you haven't, I hope you will. In fact, I'd like to pray towards that end right now. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, yes, we bow because you're high and lifted up. Yes, first on the cross and then beyond it, high and lifted up to the right hand of the Father, seated as victorious Savior one day to receive praise and honor and glory from one such an as us, and even to be acknowledged as king above all kings and lord above all lords by everyone, one way or the other. And until that happens, oh God, I pray there be not one here who's walking away what you came to do, suffer and die, so that we wouldn't have to. Lord Jesus, you came to die for sins. You had none of your own. It's ours. I pray there be no one here who doesn't understand that. So I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enable folks to acknowledge sin and need for a sin substitute. And then I pray that that one, that two, I don't know, might by your grace see you, Lord Jesus, to be the one and only sin substitute for them. You had them on your mind 2,000 years ago when you suffered and died in such fashion so as to fulfill scripture, to give everyone here confidence that you are the way and the truth and the life. And so I pray to you, giver of eternal life, forgiver of sins, bestower of right standing with the Father, I pray that would be the case with those who stand in need of forgiveness and a personal relationship with you even now. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.